This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. friend of mine sent me an SMS text message the other day. Well, actually, if we're being technical, it was a WhatsApp message. I do prefer WhatsApp for a variety of reasons that uh, we don't need to get into now, but I like the fact that it's encrypted. I like the fact that you could do a lot more with it. In any event, this gentleman who is a very prominent member of the New York State Judiciary, Sends me this message. Topic for conversation on the radio. Immediately my intrigue is piqued. And he says, people you want to see before Christmas versus after Christmas. And then he adds, I think it's a way of assessing a tier system to friendships and family members. And I have to tell you, this is one of the few things. I do a lot of thinking. This is one of the few things that I have never spent one second thinking about. So when confronted with this, I did some thinking. And I agree. I think there are a lot of friends, family members, maybe even coworkers. Coworkers are a little bit of a different category because there's usually a holiday party at most workplaces. But there's a whole category of people that you'd like to make sure you try and see before the Christmas holiday. Then if you, if there's someone that you're kind of trying to make plans with, maybe uh, it's uh, somebody that you haven't seen in a while and you regularly get together for lunch or for dinner or your children are friends and you want to get the kids together. There are people that you prefer to see after the Christmas holiday and after New Year's. And you, in my experience, the people that you are a bit closer to, sometimes more than a bit, are the folks that you prefer to see before Christmas. The folks that you're not as close with, you prefer to see after Christmas. I don't know why. I uh, don't think these people are expecting a Christmas gift or anything along those lines. It's it's just, to my friend's point, it's... A very interesting internal social hierarchy that we all have if you subscribe to my methodology and his. Now, maybe some people don't care. I'll see you when I see you. If it's December 23rd, December 24th, it doesn't matter if it's January 11th, whatever the case may be. I, You know what I think it is? The period between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Even for non, you know, non-Gentiles, the period between Thanksgiving and Christmas is so packed. There is so much to do. You have to find a way to tip everybody. You have to find a way to get uh, gifts for everybody that's on your Christmas list. You have to decorate. Then, uh, it, it, I don't care if you're the most antisocial person in the world, you get invited to a lot of holiday parties. One for work, one for uh, maybe a civic group that you're involved in, one for the community board, one for this, one for that. 
Everybody has a Christmas party, and even if you do the bare minimum, you got you got to stop by a lot of Christmas parties. So I think, to my friend's point, and I agree with this, if you're close with someone, you're willing to have your schedule thrown into turmoil, you're having your schedule thrown into chaos in order to see them before Christmas, whereas if it's someone that you're not as close to, you see them after Christmas when things calm down a little bit. I am curious if you agree. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. In about 10 minutes, we're going to talk with Nicholas Meyer. Uh, Nicholas Meyer has been a guest on this show before. He's a novelist. He's written a lot of great books about Sherlock Holmes and uh, and other things. But he's also a terrific screenwriter and director. He directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. He directed Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Those are two of the finest Star Trek films ever. But we're having him on today uh, to talk about what occurred 40 years ago this month in a major television event. He directed The Day After which was watched by 100 million people. Can you imagine 100 million people watching anything these days? I mean, it's unfathomable. Absolutely unfathomable. So I rewatched uh, The Day After yesterday because uh, I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I will tell you, I think the film still holds up. I have not seen the documentary about it that's out. It's called uh, Television Event. But uh, I, I'm even more interested in seeing it after seeing this uh, film again because it really is well done. I'm looking forward to talking with Nicholas Meyer about it. All right, 800-848-9222, three open lines. Uh, Matt Blaze, you have a view as to whether or not you care about seeing someone before Christmas or after Christmas and where that uh, affects their ranks on the social hierarchy? I don't want to see anybody before Christmas, after Christmas, during Christmas. Leave me alone. I want to stay home. I want to enjoy my tree, watch Elf, watch A Christmas Story, watch Christmas Vacation. That's all I need. Period. You know, first of all, I'm not entirely surpri- surprised by your uh, your answer here. How did you meet your significant other, by the way, with all the uh, isolation and social misanthropy that you engage in on a regular basis? Well, back then I was not like this, so it was at a party. What what happened to you? How did you get to be so so uh, crotchety and, and curmudgeonly? Just beaten down by life, Frank. Man, that's sad. I feel like you need to be visited by three ghosts or something. I probably do. I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I might be a step away from Scrooge. Meanwhile, step you, away. You, you got um, beside you in the booth there, Christian, who is maybe the friendliest person ever. I, I, I imagine that's driving you crazy to have Christian in there saying hello to people, smiling, being friendly. That has got to be just killing you, man. It's true. I don't say it. I, I don't say it out loud. But in my head, I'm like, would you just shut up already? <laughs> Stop. Enough. Enough. Enough with the niceties. Enough. Oh, I love it. The odd couple of the control room. All right. 800-848-9222. Uh, Rocco is in Saratoga. Hi, Rocco. Good evening, Frank. Hey, hey, Matt. Matt, lighten up, my friend. I think you are the Grinch. Come on, buddy. Hey, lighten up. I love your music selections on the bumpers. You're the best. Christian, now I love you, you Rocco. Know. Now you're the greatest caller ever. Oh, 
Oh, hey, come on. Hey, don't stroke me now. Okay. Well, if you want to, you come up to Saratoga, I'll make sure you're not the Grinch up here. Thank right? you, Rocco. You know, I got an SMS text message here from Anonymous, a former listener of the week. He says, A, I don't want to see anyone before or after Christmas, and I hate people, and B, tell Blaze to stop copying me. Maybe there's something about being awake at this time that leads people to be curmudgeonly and a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit misanthropic. I don't think so, though. I, I like night people. So um, I don't know. Maybe uh, we'll, we'll see. So far, uh, so far, nobody is agreeing with this this hierarchy that I've spelled out in my social relationships. I think the people you really want to see, you make an effort to see before Christmas. For everybody else, eh. After Christmas is fine. And that applies to friends as well as family, as far as I'm concerned. It's just a lot going on. 800-848-9222. Very quickly, E. Frank, give me your thoughts. Yeah, Frank, you know, I celebrate Christmas according to the Catholic faith and religion. I do not want to see any of my family members, any of my neighbors, anyone. Does anyone doubt that this is super mutual on their part? According to what the church and God wants for in Jesus, rather than having parties or going out to uh, Christmas reunions and none of that nature. No, no, I can't. I never would. I never stood for that. And watching my Christmas shows. Thank you, E. Frank. Hey, uh, do me a favor. Cross E. Frank off the list of our Christmas party uh, so that we we won't invite him. We don't want to put him in a position where he feels obligated when he's clearly not uh, comfortable. Cross him right off. I got to say that now that um, it sounds like E. Frank and I have the same line of thinking, I might have to rethink my entire life. Yeah, I, I I would say so. Nicholas Meyer joins me next to talk about the day after. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight, I'm Frank Morano. I have said repeatedly one of the great joys of uh, being able to do this for a living is getting to talk with people you have always been a fan of, people you've always admired about some of the work they've done that you happen to be 
admiring of. And that has certainly been the case with my conversations with Nicholas Meyer. Uh, Nicholas Meyer is a terrific screenwriter, a terrific director, a terrific author. He's had multiple best-selling novels. He's had a lot of blockbuster feature films, including Star Trek II and Star Trek VI, two of my favorites. But it just so happens that this month, 40 years ago was one of the most notable television events of all time. In fact, this was the most watched TV movie of all time. I was speaking about it yesterday, and when I was talking about it, and I was saying, uh, does anybody know how I can still watch a version of this because I'd like to watch it again, make sure it's fresh in my recollection, I was deluged with not only about 40 or 50 people all giving me instructions of a different way to still watch it, but they all shared with me their recollection of their reaction the first time they saw the day after. It is indeed the 40th anniversary of the day after, not only the most watched TV movie of all time, a record that is likely to stand forever because of the nature of television and viewership these days, but it has unfortunately become more relevant than ever given the fact that there are multiple nuclear powers that are literally and figuratively warring with one another. Very, very pleased uh, to welcome back to the program novelist, screenwriter, director, producer, Nicholas Meyer, whose credits do include The Day After. Mr. Meyer, it's great to talk to you again. (laughs) Thank you. I almost didn't recognize myself, but thank you. Uh, let me begin with uh, a non-day-after-related question. I, I uh, had the opportunity, and I think we spoke about this a bit last year, to do a, a series of Q&As with William Shatner after st- a screening of Star Trek Two. And as you might imagine, when it's a film that you've directed, your name came up once or twice during our conversation. Um, Shatner claimed that during the making of that film, you took his daughter out on a date wearing a top hat. Can you confirm either the date or the top hat, sir? I had a lot of dates with his daughter, whom I simply adored. Not during any of them do I recall wearing, let alone owning, a top hat. All right. Well, but, you know, I have noticed Shatner does have a tendency and I'm not sure if it's for comedic effect or to alleviate boredom. He does have a tendency to make things up from time to time. Is that something that you've ever noticed? Let me tell you a related anecdote. Um, Everybody who works on Star Trek writes a memoir. And uh, I think. Leonard Nimoy wrote two memoirs. The first one was called I Am Not Spock. And then about 20 years later, he wrote a second one, I Am Spock. Um, And so whenever I was wandering into bookstores, you remember bookstores, and and I I would see one of those Star Trek memoirs. The first thing I would do is go to the index and look up to find out what people, you know, thought of me. And I was bemused to read, I I guess it was in the second Nimoy uh, memoir, that the day we filmed his death scene, 
he was very, very upset because I showed up uh, dressed as Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> which he thought was mighty insensitive of me. Now, memory is a funny thing, and I don't you know, claim that my memories are perfect, but I can tell you, number one, that I've never dressed as Sherlock Holmes in my life. Uh, no more have I worn a top hat except maybe as a kid on Halloween. But what his memory sort of was dancing around um, was the fact that the day we filmed uh, the death of Spock, I was wearing a suit. And the reason I was wearing a suit is that I had opera tickets that night downtown. Mm. And in those days, you dressed when you went to the opera. Now no one cares. Um, so I was wearing a suit on, on the day we filmed because uh, I knew we would rap and then I would, you know, head off to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Um, so that's his memory sort of playing around. And I'm not sure whether Chatner is making up or misremembering. Um, he, he introduced me to his daughter because he figured quite rightly that we would get along like a house on fire. Um, and we did, but I did not wear a top hat. Well, and uh, for people that don't know, you not only wrote the uh, 7% Solution, which is a terrific novel and a film uh, that deals with William Shatner. You've written several William Shatner, uh, excuse me, uh, Sherlock Holmes. You've written several Sherlock Holmes novels, including one uh, that may make a, a great stocking stuffer called Return of the Pharaoh, which I had the opportunity to read uh, last year, which was uh, quite engaging. Now, um, it was just a year or so after Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, that you did The Day After. You not only had Star Trek II, which was a big hit, but you had Time After Time, which was a big hit. A lot of people at that time wouldn't consider, after two hit feature films and uh, several novels that did very well, for the, to do a TV movie. A lot of folks kind of viewed TV movies as being a bit of a step down from features. Yes. When you, yes. at that point in your career, when you're sort of at the top of your game as a film director, what made you, what led you to the decision to do a television movie? Um, I will tell you, first of all, uh, I have to sort of preface my answer by going to a key point about the nuclear problem. It's a paradox. And the paradox is that since 1940, we have basically achieved the ability to blow ourselves to bits this is the you know this and climate change are the two most deadly problems that have confronted human beings and yet no one can bear to think about nuclear war though so we don't we we sort of pretend or hope that it doesn't happen hope by the way is not a strategy um, and I was, I believe, the third director offered to direct this movie. Um, so not a lot of people were lining up to do it, obviously, but they worked their way down to me. And I was being psychoanalyzed at the time 
which is a very lengthy, expensive, uh, and difficult process, but it, it did wonders for me, I, I have to say. Um, but if you could take a pill and bypass it, do that for sure. Um, I was lying on the couch trying to rationalize my way out of doing this movie. And my analyst, who didn't speak, they don't, they don't speak. You do all the heavy lifting mm-hmm. in, in, in formal psychoanalysis. He surprised me by opening his mouth in the middle of my mumblings and said, well, I guess this is where we find out who you really are. Wow. Checkmate. I, I didn't know how to wriggle off that hook. Um, and that's how I wound up doing the movie. Um, I don't think I was any more eager to think about nuclear war than anybody else. I just, in a way, didn't know how I could live with myself if Hollywood actually gave me the chance to put my work in the service of my beliefs, and I turned it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how I wound up doing it. We're talking with uh, Nicholas Meyer. Uh, his many credits include The Day After, which a lot of people are looking back now in light of the fact that it's the 40th anniversary and the fact that uh, people have raised the prospect that we may be closer than we have in decades to uh, an honest-to-God nuclear conflict. I am curious about the story of uh, the military's role in the production of this. It's not uh, unusual in terms of uh, military cooperation to allow uh, film productions to use equipment, uh, certain types of footage, uh, certain types of aircraft. But then that usually comes with a certain amount of strings over editorial control. I'm curious if you can uh, fill folks in on what your talks were like with the Pentagon on about using equipment and things of that nature. Absolutely. Um, before I answer, and the answer is very short, um, I should tell your listeners that on November 15th, a new book about the making of the day after was just published by uh, Professor David Craig. It's called Apocalypse Television. Um, how the day after helped end the Cold War. I can't remember the subtitle, but it's a pretty good book. It, hmm. It's it's got some factual errors about the tug of war in the editing room, um, and there are a couple of things. But by and large, it's pretty it's pretty good. Don't and tell me they of, have you in a top hat in that book as well. No, they don't. But he. He caught my humble, self-effacing egomania, <laughs> and uh, I was, you know, I kind of winced a few times, but I thought, well, yeah, I suppose that was me. Um, but what did happen, and this is not only related in the book, but also there's a new documentary, if you haven't seen it, about the making of the day after, and the making of the day after, it's called Television Event. Television Event. And uh, I think it's on YouTube. Mm. Uh, and it's a pretty good documentary. And the same story is in the book and the movie. And now I'm telling you that the military offered cooperation. They had one condition. 
the the day after recounts a nuclear exchange between the United States and what was then the Soviet Union. And they wanted to make it clear that the Soviet Union started the war. And we told them to take a hike. Uh, we just we didn't we didn't use them um, because that was contra. The whole point of this movie was we weren't telling a political story. We weren't telling a military story. We were just talking about what would happen to regular people, people like you and me. And suddenly we get incinerated. And that was it. It wasn't about we're, th- those people are never going to know. We're never going to know who started it. Right. We're just blown up. It doesn't make make a difference to us if it's the Russians or the United States. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, when you listen to people describe living through the uh, Cuban missile crisis, which uh, I, I didn't, but I've had a lot of conversations with m- my father about this. There was a sense that uh, nuclear war really could have been imminent and that uh, during the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, that it could all just end in a matter of moments. In the 1980s, my recollection was that uh, feelings and fears about the prospect of a nuclear holocaust were much more relaxed, at least compared to the 1960s. In fact, in watching The Day After again yesterday, uh, the character Jason Robards plays and his wife, they're actually talking about how uh, perilous it felt like in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis. As far as the feeling when you made this film... When you were making this, was there a feeling on your part, on the part of the other people involved in the film, that this could actually happen? Or was this more approached as science fiction? I have to correct you about one thing by way of an answer. In 1983, we came much closer to nuclear war than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, this is a long answer, but bear with me. Number one, there have been several nuclear accidents. Mm. I believe in the 1960s, I think it was the Air Force dropped two nukes on North Carolina. Um, They didn't go off. Um, I think it was in the 1970s, but you can Google this. Anybody can Google it. Google, you know, missile silo, monkey wrench, Arkansas. A workman dropped a monkey wrench down the missile silo in Arkansas. They hit a fuel line and it precipitated what could have been a nuclear explosion that would have wiped half of Arkansas off the map. And then there's the story of Colonel Petrov. I'm not sure if you know about Petrov, but Colonel Petrov was the duty officer in one of those listening posts where You know, when you see NASA control, it's a bunch of guys staring at computer screens. And, you know, in the case of um, nuclear war, they're all hoping that they never see missiles coming at them uh, as detected by satellites or whatever. And and while Petrov was on duty, um, they saw four missiles coming from the United States toward them. And guys in that room were screaming and crying and throwing up, and and Petrov was supposed to call the Kremlin. And he decided that it didn't quite make sense 
that the United States would only send four missiles. Mm. And so he declined to call the Kremlin. And it turned out it was something else. I, don't, I can't remember if it was birds or what it was. But it was nothing else. But he got fired from the army. He got cashiered. He got sent to Siberia because he didn't call the Kremlin. And he didn't call them because he knew they'd push the button. And he just didn't believe it. And years later, I think, he was brought to the United States and introduced at the General Assembly at the United Nations as the man who saved the world. Mm. And the funny part was that all he wanted to do was meet Kevin Costner. (laughs) Um, Because he had a VHS of the bodyguard with Whitney Houston, and that's who he wanted to meet, and and he, he did get to meet her. But all... Humor aside, in 1983, the Soviet premier was Yuri Andropov, who was a very aged, partially bedridden premier. He was the last one of the old guard there. And Ronald Reagan, remember, came to power believing in a winnable nuclear war. And intelligence agencies frequently garble stuff up, but... Uh, Andropov, in his somewhat senile state of uncertainty, was absolutely convinced that Ronald Reagan was going to push the button. Um, So we were very, very close. I didn't know all that until much later. Sure. But but it, it wasn't better than when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, although, little day after story, there was a general on Castro's staff who after who said that the Cuban Missile Crisis had not been real to him until he saw the movie, until he saw the day after. And that, by the way, is exactly what happened to Ronald Reagan. The day after the day after was on the air, all the reporters went around shoving microphones in front of everybody and saying, did this movie change your mind about nuclear war one way or the other. And everybody said, no, it didn't. And I'm for it. I'm against it, whatever. Um, And, but it turned out that the movie changed one person's mind. And that person happened to be the president. Um, He says it in his memoir, uh, Edmund Morris, who wrote Dutch, which who was his official biographer was in the white house for three years and said the only time he ever saw Reagan flip out was when he had seen the movie. And, and, and by the way, I, Edmund Morris repeated this story to me because I was working on the screenplay for The Rise of Theodore mm. Roosevelt for Martin Scorsese, so I got to know him. Um, and that's, so he, he repeated the story. Um, and Reagan wound up because by this time Andropov had died and Gorbachev was the new Soviet premier. And he went to Iceland, to Reykjavik, met with Gorbachev and signed the Intermediate Range Missile Treaty, uh, which is the only treaty that ever resulted in the physical dismantling of nuclear weapons. Wow. Um, My little contribution to peace in our time, of course, um, former President Trump has walked out of that treaty 
uh, as he walks out of most treaties. Um, so we're back to square one. Um, and big companies like Northrop Grumman make billions of dollars selling missile weapon systems that can never be used. And if they, you know, if they do, it's a, it's a total disaster. One way, you know, to ramp down a nuclear war, which we are perilously close to finding ourselves in, would be to get rid of the missile silos in the continental United States. Those are stationary targets on our backs, and everybody knows where they are. So why not leave it to the Polaris submarines, mm. which are mobile, uh, and that would be like one step down to making us such a tempting target. That sounds uh, pretty logical to me, but uh, questions about nuclear geopolitical strategy are far above my pay grade. I'll leave that to you and the other people that are in the habit of uh, getting presidents to change their mind. Uh, on the much more mundane aspect of the production and the screening of this film the day after, Obviously, I don't know that most people thought that this was going to have 100 million viewers at the time that it aired. When you were making this film, did you know that it was going to be as big of a hit as it was? And given the fact that it did achieve such a big audience, was it still difficult to get advertisers given the subject matter? Well, taking your questions one by one, I not only did I not believe it was going to be a hit, I didn't believe it was going to get on the air. Um, I just said, you know, we've got three networks, and the business of networks is to sell advertisers, advertising, and I don't think you're, you know, <laughs> everybody's watching The Flying Nun or laughing or something. We're not going to be watching a network primetime movie about nuclear war it's just i didn't think it was going to get on the air when it was on the air the night it was on i was with my fiance and i said to her you know you think anybody's watching this if be honest if if you weren't my girlfriend would you be watching it um and then so i was completely flabbergasted when i learned the next morning that at least at least a hundred million people had watched it's probably Several million more, actually. Um, so I, I hadn't, I had not a clue. Um, all I know is that the amount of controversy that got ginned up by people like William Buckley and Phyllis Schlafly and a lot of uh, conservatives and and uh, people like that who were very convinced that this was detrimental to the security of the United States and were simply appalled when Reagan uh, went to Iceland and, and saw, signed that treaty. They were just horrified. Um, so, yeah, I was completely unprepared for the movie having, A, a big audience. And, and the only thing I did know was that we lost all our advertisers. ABC hated this movie, and they hated it because they knew they were going to lose their advertisers, which they did. General Foods, General Motors, General Mills, all the generals headed for the <laughs> they were the, 
<laughs> we were left with Orville Redenbacher popcorn before the bomb and nothing after because no one wanted any part of it. And uh, this movie got made because one man wanted it made. And that man was a man named Brandon Stoddard, who was the head of ABC Circle Films that made their uh, TV movies. And Stoddard, who had done a lot of after-school specials, had leapt into fantastic success with his miniseries Roots. And he was looking for a follow-up to Roots. And he went and saw a Jack Lemmon, Michael Douglas, Jane Fonda movie called The China Syndrome. And The China Syndrome dealt with a, nu- with a meltdown at a nuclear power plant. And he came out of that movie and just started to think, well, what what it would be like if we could show a nuclear exchange, no 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 politics, no nothing like that, but just how how ordinary people would be affected. Um, and obviously they would die. Um, and he, he got fought every step of the way. He had his life threatened. Somebody left a note on his car and said, this could have been a bomb. Much of this, by the way, is in that book, uh, apocalypse television. And also it's in the documentary television Mm -hmm. event recounts all this stuff. I never knew any of that. I, you know, I was sort of convinced Stoddard was my enemy. Huh. That's how stupid. That's how stupid I was. He was the best friend I had, and I didn't even know it. Obviously, maybe you can never analyze perfectly why something uh, checks all the boxes to become a hit, whereas something else that should check all those same boxes doesn't necessarily have the same magic formula to become a hit. But why do you think? It was so watched. I mean, 100 million people, that's more people than watch a lot of Super Bowls. I mean, that's an incredible number of people. That's more than the population of most countries. Obviously, everybody has an interest in the prospect of nuclear war. But for uh, the reasons that you stated about your reluctance to get involved with this picture, a lot of times they don't like to think about it. We don't like to think. So what, 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 what made this uh, strike all the right chords to garner such an audience? Well, I don't, I, I don't think I'm qualified. I don't know who is qualified to answer the question entirely. I think I was hinting at my theory when I said all this controversy made it just something like a must-see event. Mm-hmm. People were running around saying, you know, don't watch it alone, watch it with a church group, watch it with your parents. Um, There was a lot of that sort of stuff. And um, I I think, you know, when people say, don't, don't, don't look at it, don't read this book or something, then there's a, it's almost like a sign that says wet paint. (laughs) We all want to touch that sign to see if the paint is really wet. <laughs> right. Uh, don't look in this room. Right. Don't look in this room. Yeah. Um, and the, I think, and it, you know, that the nuclear freeze 
movement got a hold of the movie for their purposes. Um, you know, more power to them from my point of view. But, you know, what I found in making the movie, because my initial thought was, oh, yeah, this this is going to be my sort of propaganda piece of armament. And what I realized is none of that was going to work. The only way this thing worked or could work is as a kind of glorified public service announcement. I didn't want great big stars. I didn't want flashy cinematography. I didn't want music. I I wanted something where I couldn't be accused of goosing anybody's motives, uh, emotions, or their beliefs. I just said, did a lot of you know research, and, and the writer, Ed Hume, who wrote the script, did a lot of research. And basically what we're saying is, if you have a nuclear war, this is what it might be like, P.S., on a good day. Which is to say, you know, we didn't know about nuclear winter, or we would have put that in for sure, but we knew about the electromagnetic pulse, the EMP, so we put that in. Um, and we didn't comment on it. We didn't comment on it. Um, we just said here, and it, it wasn't even the worst version that we could have shown because I knew that everybody has that remote clicker. Sure. They could just reach for the thing. If it got to, you know, whatever, there's a British movie called threads. That's you know, 10 times worse. Um, and there was a one called, a uh, war game, another BBC movie that was so upsetting that the BBC wouldn't put it on the air. So I, I couldn't go near that stuff. I had to find a, a kind of a middle ground. Um, but it just, it, it you know, it struck a nerve. And, and that's, you know, I, I don't really know more mm -hmm. than to say than that. I, I'm just about out of time, and we've been talking with Nicholas Meyer, and uh, he's not only the director of The Day After, but uh, a terrific novelist and screenwriter in a, a variety of different fields. Let me just end with this. I, I just rewatched the film yesterday. hadn't seen it in decades. I still think it holds up. In fact, I think given the geopolitical tensions, uh, not only with respect to Europe, but the Middle East and elsewhere, I think it actually holds up better now than it might have 10 or 15 years ago where people viewed the prospect of nuclear war as just something you read in the history books. Have you seen the movie lately? And how do you think it holds up today? Well, I'll just preface it by saying I, I don't think artists are the best judges of their own work. But having said that, I did see the movie within the years. I've seen it. And it freaked me out. I, I just thought, wow, uh, you know, and I, and by this time, I'm not looking at it as a director anymore. And, you know, why didn't you get that shot? Why didn't you go closer? Whatever. I was just watching it. And it's appalling. It's, it's appalling. I just experienced it as an audience. And it's, it's hard to take. It's hard to take. But if we don't look at this stuff, if we don't think about it, if we don't confront it, if we don't protest, if we don't say, 
get rid of those damn missile silos. Let's just start there. Uh, I realize that Northrop Grumman will, you know, lose a fair amount of money. Let's get rid of that. Um, because there are there are accidents. We're in a shaky world, and there are a lot of human beings who have their fingers on a lot of buttons. Mm. And you don't want some nervous Nelly jumping the gun, because once this toothpaste is out of the tube, there's no getting it back. It's just going to be bang, 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 which is keeps me awake at night. It just does. I've I've got kids, and uh, I'm, you know, lucky to be alive, lucky to be healthy, enjoying myself. And I have a new novel coming out in August. I hope I'm here to see the what the novel does. By the way, it's called <laughs> called Sherlock Holmes and the Telegram from Hell. On that note, uh, I uh, very much appreciate the time. I always really learn so much whenever we whenever we chat. I hope we can do this again soon. Uh, definitely encouraging folks to, uh, if they want to pre-order the Sherlock Holmes and the Telegram from Hell, they can do that or uh, check out some of your previous books as well. Uh, Nicholas Meyer, it's always a treat to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was so uh, pleased to be invited back. Well, well, trust me, uh, you're you're on my speed dial now, so you'll be invited back again. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. Now I had the time of my life. No, I never felt like this before. Yes, I swear it's a truth, and I owe it all to you. Obviously, this song immortalized in the motion picture Dirty Dancing. This is a uh, birthday bumper music selection from actress, model, mentor, and social media influencer Zen Sams. Uh, Zen is a friend of mine for a long time. Great woman, great mom, great actress. And uh, her husband's a producer who's been on this show, uh, Brad Feinstein. And um, I haven't seen her in a while. And uh, she was kind enough to invite me to something... You know, I think in a week or two, but I'm probably going to skip it because I got enough stuff to go to. But uh, she's a great person nonetheless. And uh, this was uh, one of her birthday bumper music selections. Hoping all of her birthday wishes come true. And yours, if you're celebrating a birthday today. All right, we're going to get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. 
You know what uh, is annoying? I knew when I left last night that I had forgotten something and I thought I had gotten everything. But as I was driving here, I knew I forgot something. And sure enough, as soon as I went to plug in my laptop, I recognized and realized that it was my laptop charger. So I'm trying to keep my laptop closed and unused for the bulk of the program. Normally, I keep it open the whole time. I like to keep it open to look up things quickly. I I like to keep my email open. I like to keep an eye on the social media correspondence. And I like to have notes, uh, kind of a rough outline of what I want to say for each segment. And, uh, you know, it kind of saves me a lot of paper and a lot of clunkiness. But um, it should last for the next two hours. It's just so annoying. I um, hate that. I hate that. It's, it's a, in tennis, they call it an unforced error. Do something like forget your laptop charger. Although this computer that uh, my mom got me for Christmas last year, it actually has a pretty long battery life. So it should be should be okay. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Hey, you know, Matt Plays, I've noticed most of the other uh, talk show hosts that work on the network, they don't have a laptop or anything. What do most of them do when they need to look up stuff or if they have notes? What do most of them do? I know Curtis's methodology, but what do most of the rest of them do? The same thing, the way Curtis does it. They just have their notes with paper. On paper. And, on paper, and that's it. I don't get it either. I would think you'd want to look up stuff quickly, but they just don't. Yeah, well, that's the thing, as they I always want to. Well, you know, maybe they're better off. I don't know. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, I am happy to get to you after the top of the hour. And I would tell you what I have planned after the top of the hour, but I'm keeping my laptop closed. So I'll be as surprised as you are. Until next hour, your influence counts. Use it. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.